This week I'm at Chainline Brewery, a brewery over in Kirkland on the other side of the 520 bridge. These three guys, Eric, Tom, and Sean, are total badasses. Their knowledge about beer is unspeakably huge. We ended up chatting for a really, really long time. So this will actually be part one of a two-part series that will conclude next week. In this episode, we talk a lot about Budweiser acquisitions and we talk about how Red Hook is skirting the line between independent brewery and Budweiser. We rehash the conversation from the last few episodes about beer competitions and whether or not those are worthy. Spoiler, these guys love them. These guys focus on making technically perfect beers. Their beers follow the style guidelines to a T, and you can really taste it. They're so, so delicious. Washington Beer Talk is supported by Craft Beer Club. If you're listening to this, then I suspect you're a big fan of beer. Craft Beer Club ships a monthly crate of carefully chosen beers straight to your door. If you need a good gift idea for the drinker that has everything, I bet they'd still appreciate a bit of beer. You can get delicious beer and support the Cycling Cicerone by following the link in the description on the blog or by going to cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club. That's cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club. I'm your host, the Cycling Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. So I'm Eric Wallace. I run operations, marketing, and sales for Chainline. Tom Fury. I guess my title is now Innovation Brewer, but a lot of brewing in general, recipe development, some doing a lot of events. And My name is Sean Vale. I'm the head brewer here at Chainline, making sure beer gets out the door so that Eric doesn't start yelling at me. I'm, I'm the master marionette puppeteer, so I have all of my minions, which are basically just Sean and Tom on little strings running marionette style throughout the, the brewery. That's what they feel like all the time. And who is that other guy walking around up there? So Mike Gustafson is our... I guess he's our work donkey, right? That's a yeah. good way to put it, our mule. He's, he literally does everything. So he's our delivery driver, our seller guy, our bounce check picker-upper, our keg cleaner, our, he's one of the hardest working guys I've ever seen, and he's invaluable asset to the brewery. You don't see him very often, but when you do, you know he's there. Big mean looking guy, but the heart of a teddy bear. Oh, he has the biggest beard. The biggest yeah, beard. Too. Sean's yeah. trying. He's got the second biggest. <laughs> this is trim, trimmed back. It used yeah. to be, you know, yeah, we don't nipple want that. length. That <laughs> crap gets stuck in the in the brew house. Yeah. No, I'm <laughs> good at this length. Did you guys ever hear about that beer brewed with beard yeast? Yes. <laughs> yep. Yes. And and then there's the belly button funk oh. in Florida. <laughs> People do stupid things. Oh God. A friend of ours did a beer with hash browns the other day, so I gave him crap about that because that's just dumb. Yeah, just ferment the hash browns and sure. you're on your way to vodka. Yeah. Or Budweiser or something. Budweiser. <laughs> yeah. Give us a sense of the size of this brewery. So it's been around for four years. Yeah. What, are, what am I looking at here? So Chainline is a, we're a lager house is kind of how we see ourselves. We're really good at making Pilsners and Czech style lagers of all flavors, uh, Palatamaves, Cherniers. Um, that being said, we use a 10, it's actually 11 hectoliter brew house from the Czech Republic um, and that puts us in you know a nice realm of making beer as fast as we can make it as slow as possible as fast as needed um, for that, all those uh, Americans 11 hectoliter is about nine and a half barrels thank you Tom Jumping nobody right knows in. what a hectoliter <laughs> is but we like to keep the mystery about it <laughs> so we're we're on a uh, a broad target uh, very optimistic not very but somewhat optimistic target of 1500 barrels this year 
the brewers wince and cringe when I say that word, but uh, we're on a, we're definitely scaling up. We're uh, 100 plus percent growth, it seems like, every year where we're just, we're cranking out as much beer as we can sell, uh, drink, produce, whatever, whatever analogy you use, but we're making beer as fast as we can sell it, selling as fast as we can make it. You look at the number of breweries in, in Washington, there's roughly 370 breweries in Washington. 75% of those breweries make less than 1,000 barrels a year. So we're above, you know, we're in the top 25 percentile if we look at it that way, uh, which is an absolute scary thought because we're a tiny, cute little brewery making great beer, but we're still a tiny, cute little brewery. And Sean's glaring at me right now <laughs> thinking, God, that's a lot of beer. The, the Czech brew house wasn't specifically meant for production brewing, so it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a challenge sometimes. Yeah, it's a showpiece. So we originally got our brew house, and for those who've never seen our brew house, it's exactly what you want a brew house to look like. Brass and copper and beautiful, made in the Czech Republic. Uh, sold to a hotel, restaurant hotel in Japan. They had it in their beautiful huge atrium as a working brew house for about a year and a half before they decided that it looked better than they could brew on it. So it sat there as a focal feature piece in the atrium of this hotel for about nine or 10 years before they decided to sell it. We caught wind of it. The owner got on an airplane, flew to Japan, said, I'll take it. And then we figured out logistics of getting it home. So. It was made, like Tom just said, the brew house is made, it's small. It's made to make beer for a single location in the Czech Republic originally. So for us to actually produce beer on it and scale it up to production size is uh, quite a feat in and of itself, as the two brewers sitting beside me will attest to. It's a gorgeous brew house though. Uh, it's meant for making pilsners, so temperature control is really easy. You want to scale it up to production, you want to get bigger. So are you planning on at some point abandoning that guy? I mean, ten, I feel like 10 barrel, 11 barrel, that's um, pretty standard for breweries in this area, size wise. Mm -hmm. So that's not like, you're yeah. not, that can't, is that your bottleneck right now? Uh, no, actually our bottleneck is actually tank space. Um, we could make more beer because Tom and Sean are both handcuffed to the brew house pretty much seven days a week maybe eight days a week. Um, feels like it. Feels like it. Uh, yeah, our, our bottleneck is actually the tank space to actually fill it, because we could utilize the brew house more. We will never abandon that brew house because it's kind of become our third leg in the tripod. It's kind of defined us as who we are and who we become as brewery and brewers and you know beer fans in general. Uh, so that being said, there is a new production facility in the planning phase. We've signed a lease on a new location. We've got new product and lots of shiny stainless steel stuff on order uh, and hope to be online end of 2018 for a new production brewery. Where's that going to be? Uh, in the general vicinity at about 500 yards from us right now. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, tap room will stay exactly where it is. We'll still use this facility for doing cool stuff, uh, but we'll, we'll be able to scale up and make a lot more beer to supply the demand that we have right now. 
So we are, we are literally next door to Google. And I say this all the time, and the boys are already looking at me with that stink eye that if you Google Google, we're right next door. <laughs> and it's sarcasm, but it's also absolutely true. Tell us more about the area. So you're, we're in Kirkland. Mm -hmm. um, why Kirkland? Uh, there were no breweries here. Um, the owner lives very close, so this is his home stomping ground. Kirkland in general is blowing up, massively blowing up. So there's a new um, shopping mall facility going in down the street. Uh, Google is here. Nintendo has offices, Microsoft, Xbox has offices. There's tons of overflow from Bellevue or Seattle or Redmond that are coming into Kirkland. And uh, you look at the rest of the city and it's saturated in Seattle proper, Soto, Ballard, Fremont, they're saturated in breweries, which is all well and good and cool. We needed something, we wanted something to differentiate us a little bit. Eastside had some representation with you know the Black Ravens, 20 Corners, all those guys, but they're still far enough away that we were not on a brewery tour because it's not easy to get here. But there's now two new breweries that have opened up recently. They're still tiny, tiny little guys, you know, home brewers taking the next step up, you know, and it's helping provide more impetus for people to come to Kirkland for beer than just us. And, and, chain line, you know, we're bicycle people. Uh, the Cross Kirkland Corridor bike path is literally 10 yards from us as I look out the window. Um, so we're right on the bike path. Something very important for us is the cycling community, bicycles in general, uh, commuting, racing, it doesn't matter, mountain bike road, BMX, who cares what you're riding, go ride bikes. Uh, so the, the Chamber of Commerce of Kirkland, the business development of Kirkland was very adamant to bring us to the plate and put us right on the trail. They wanted to expand the, uh, the businesses on the trail and we're a cornerstone to that. And they use us in their marketing, in their sales pitches, in their, their development of downtown Kirkland as a feature piece for the Cross Kirkland Corridor bike path. You mentioned uh, Scott, the owner. And I have, I've been here now a couple of times, I've hung out with you guys a bunch, and I have never met or seen Scott. What's his involvement these days? Uh, we literally just put him on an airplane and sent him to France because he was bugging the crap out of us. <laughs> uh, no, that's not true. Come on. Uh, he, uh, he is here every single day, literally seven days a week. He's, he's behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, running trivia, helping run pipes in the back. I mean, he's always here. So just by pure luck that I hadn't run into him yet. Yes. Okay. I've only yeah. really only been here three times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he is here all the time. And uh, it helps he lives literally up the street because he is here a lot. And rightly so. I mean, he owns it, he's got his hands on it. You know, we, we he's right here with us talking recipe development, he's right here talking sales numbers. Um, the whole nine yards. So he knows what he's doing and he, he's, he's, he's very excited about what we do. How did the team kind of grow? So it started with Scott, he's the owner. Yeah. So uh, I'm guessing founder. Yeah. Um, how did he meet you guys? How did you bring you all on? So Scott and his wife, Michelle, were sitting at Hot Vine Pub up on Capitol Hill. 
and they literally birthed the idea of the brewery at Hopvine. So we, we applaud Bob Renlin, who owns Hopvine as our, we call him the Bob Father in more ways than one. So, you know, it was sure his- he loves that term. Yeah, he hates it. <laughs> so Bob, Bob Renlin, the Bob Father. Bob, I'm gonna say it again. Um, so he, Scott and Michelle birthed the idea. They brought in our previous brewer um, and they worked for about a year working on recipes in Scott's garage, got everything online, opened the brew house, opened the tap room. The previous brewer and I were very good friends and he brought me on board to, to kind of manage the, the marketing and the sales um, and that expanded. Uh, but I'm a cyclist as well, so Scott and I bonded immediately. Aaron, the previous brewer, also rode bikes. And then we kind of hit production numbers where we needed more people. And that's where that guy came into play. Tom. Tom, me. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, you can see my finger pointing on the radio. Yeah. What are you talking about? Podcasts are visible too. Yeah, so I came on board fairly recently while Aaron was still here. Mm -hmm. uh, Aaron is now the we don't head, say his name very often. Head brewer at Matchless. Um, oh, okay. I guess co-head brewer. I'm not sure what his lead monkey. But he a lot of the the flagship beers have his identity, and now Sean and I have been kind of tweaking those recipes a little bit more, um, working with them, and then also developing our own stuff. So a lot of his identity is still scattered across the brewery. Even you know some of his old corny kegs are still here. Aaron, come pick those up, by the way. Right away, please. <laughs> the fridge is getting full. Yes. But yeah, I learned a lot of things from him. Um, he, he has a very uh, creative mind, which I'm probably similar, I guess. Um, and uh, I think Sean and I have taken it from there, and we're still running, so. That's a good sign. Fun. We haven't shut the place down yet. No. <laughs> still won some awards, yeah. so we're doing all right. I'm the newest comer. I started in April. Um, I actually took Aaron's spot. I've kind of been all over. Uh, most recently, I was actually working down at uh, Fish in Olympia. Um, so I was there for, for a little bit and then saw this opening and wanted to get, uh, wanted to get back to brewing on a smaller scale. Um, done a little bit of it, although most of my experience is actually at much larger breweries. So I think I kind of fit in there because you know, like we already went over, we are expanding. So I've been at larger places, seen how larger facilities work, uh, what works, what doesn't. But, you know, I'm happy to be here, happy that I get to do a lot more experimentation, having some fun, making some good beer. What I've found with a lot of breweries that I've talked to um, of this scale, maybe all scale and age, is that for the most part, their identity is tied pretty heavily to their founder and their head brewer, who's usually the same person, and or you know one of two people at the place you guys have a big team a relatively big team you know that's five people yep. and i think it's an interesting thing to think about how your identity isn't tied to your brewer and how your brand can exist and how your brewery exists and it still has employees and they shift around and your identity kind of continues on it's funny because when aaron announces departure family reasons moving back to olympia things of that nature we wondered about that. We were kind of worried that maybe our beer was tied up into his personality. And yes, he helped develop the recipes, he developed the beers, he set us on the right track, but 
were not tied to his personality as a brewery. Our beers stand alone. We just won a couple medals this past weekend. Sean's recipe won one. Tom's recipe won the other one. So we're still making style proper, awesome beers. New brewers, yes, that doesn't have any relevance because it's still recipe development with good brewers and a great brew house using the proper ingredients, using style guidelines mm -hmm. to brew the beer. Um, and knowing what we like as drinkers. So what I see when I look at your brewery is a, a bunch of different identities that have all mashed into one. So you're, you've got the bike theme, you've got the, you know, the lager check theme. Check theme is pretty unique to Seattle too. There's no one else really doing that kind of thing. And maybe you can think of some other breweries that are, and you got Kirkland. So I don't know, you've got a lot of identities here that are all kind of mash, mashing together. Whose idea was that? How did that come? How did that sort of come to be? A lot of it was organic growth. We're cyclists. Scott, the owner, is a cyclist. I'm a cyclist. Tom rides bikes. Sean will ride bikes. He's getting <laughs> coerced into it. They're gonna make him. <laughs> he doesn't have a choice in the matter. So we're all cyclists, and beer and bikes go hand in hand. That's a given. We know that. So. You know, when we started the brewery here, it was bicycle-themed because that's who we are. We're cyclists that like beer. The logger house, the check thing, we literally just fell into that. Like, the brew house, you know, we were going we to be like everybody else, right? You know, you look at 370 breweries in Washington, and the vast majority are IPA houses because that's what everybody drinks. That's what sells. That's the easy lower hanging fruit to becoming a brewery. And then you can figure things out once you set yourself as a brewer or brewery. You make IPAs, you sell them, expand. We fell into the check and the loggers because of our brew house, because of the experiences that we were able to kind of throw together for recipe development. And I mean, we've won a World Beer Cup medal. We've won a GABF medal. We've won tons of Best in Craft Beer Awards. We've won Washington Beer Awards with our loggers. You look at all of those things in one, there's very, very few breweries in Seattle or Washington in general that have all of those awards hanging on their wall in one place, especially in such a short period of time. There's great breweries, amazing breweries, phenomenal breweries in the state and more so in Seattle proper. Um, and I can think of a dozen that make phenomenal pilsners. And you know, pilsners are kind of becoming the thing all of a sudden. But we started as an IPA house, that was our intention, but this brew house allows us to make pilsner. Let's go make something cool with the pilsner and expand on the Czech theme because all the Czech beers, I mean, that's, Pilsen is the home of great beer. We love to drink pilsners too, you know, end of the day, that's usually the first thing we grab, so. It's the best bike beer, yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, for all that talk of Pilsners, we're drinking the Hazy IPA right now. No, we're not. Well, we're almost. We're drinking Hazy Pale Ale. Uh, ha ha, gotcha. Mm, that's almost semantics at this point. Uh, but well, go on. Sean will tell you why it's not semantics, because we've had this discussion many times over between Pale and IPA. It's like, why can't we name this, uh, this pale, pale Ale? Right. Well, uh, the reason we're not calling it an IPA is uh, because it's one, lower ABV, and so it really does not fit into that category. Uh, it also is a little bit uh, a little bit darker than, uh, than our IPA, than our uh, tune-up. But mostly the, the alcohol is really kind of the deciding factor on that. If you look at any 
any of the style guidelines are usually pretty, pretty well defined as far as which can go into a category. So I always like having stuff named, named like it would go if I was entering it into a competition. You know, it just it makes more sense to me that way. And that way, I mean, it's always kind of funny at competitions you see, you know, a beer that doesn't really, you know, the overarching style category is. Uh, well, I've, I've seen a couple years in a row where it's, you know, it's Vienna Lager, and then there's all the, the Marzins that are actually winning it. So it's just like, you know, name the beer what it actually is. A conversation I've had a lot with brewers recently, and just actually in the last couple of weeks, was that like a lot of people are getting kind of mad at competitions. Not a lot of people, but a couple of people think competitions are kind of bogus. And you guys definitely participate in them. You definitely win them, and that's awesome. And you try really hard to properly categorize your beer. One of the things I see with competitions is that like a lot of times they're not mismanaged, but kind of just an impossible thing to do, right? Like you can't really categorize it's, beer. I mean, it's always certain styles, you know, are I think easier to judge than others. Uh, there are some catch-all categories, but it really just with so many breweries and so many entries, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. Uh, you know, whether or not you know, how many categories that judge had been doing that day, whether they had palate fatigue, you know, uh, one beer over another, it's just usually it's very slight differences. And, you know, you've got like the GABF last year, the IPA category, there's over 400 entries in that category. I mean, you win it, great, that's awesome. That's speaking volumes for your IPA, but think of how many really good IPAs were entered in that and, you know, didn't see anything. You know, as as a brewer on our side, you know, I'm always looking for, even if we didn't win, you know, did we make it past the first elimination round? You know, that that alone kind of speaks volume. Like, okay, your your beer was was a good example of the style. You know, the, um, you know, maybe next year you can enter it and actually win something. Um, competitions are always are always fun. It, it, you know, it's it can be a nice validation for your effort. Um, as as much as we like winning medals, it, it always comes to you know we. We'd rather make a good beer and sell a good beer. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, a lot of what Sean just said, you know, he said he mentioned style, style categories, style descriptions, a lot in both things that he was just talking about. And when we make beer, we all sit and talk about the beer. Uh, and my statement to the guys is always make it to style. Let's not just throw a bunch of stuff in there because that's let's not do a glitter IPA hazy thing because it's the cool thing right now. Let's make it by style. And if it's not to style, there better be a good reason that it's not to style. And you know, your whole line of questioning about competitions is very timely considering Washington Beer Awards was literally just this past weekend. And we were talking about that this morning about how some breweries from Washington won awards at World Beer Cup a month ago. They've won other North American Beer Cup awards. And then their beer didn't even medal at Washington Beer Awards. Might have been the same keg. And, you know, the Chuckanuts and the Wanders and, you know, those guys, same beer. They win awards, but they didn't win this weekend. And like Sean was saying, it's like, there's so many variables you know, when it comes to palate fatigue, when it comes to where your beer lines up, you know, before or after certain things, how it's poured, how it's packaged, how they treat the beer, uh, innumerable variables. And the competitions are for us. 
in the brewer's world. They don't mean anything out in the real world for who's going to buy it or who's not going to buy it. Chuck's Hop Shop, they could care less if we want a metal. They just want beer that tastes good that they can sell. And, you know, Tom sitting next to me, he was a judge at Washington Beer Awards. So I blame him 100% for all the nonsense because... Well, the categories I judged were pretty solid. And and not that I'm knocking Washington Beer Awards because they do a good job and the festival's awesome and all that stuff that goes with it. But it just seems like if you're going to judge by style, you better judge by style. One of the things I hear that competitions do wrong is you can, and actually you just mentioned this, how you have the Martins and the Vienna Lager category just taking the cake because that's what you do. Like, I, I think I read a book, I, don't, I, I, wanna, I won't sell any authors that did this, but they said, like, yeah, if you really want to win beer competitions, throw your IPA in the pale ale category or throw your double IPA in the IPA category because people, judges, who are dying from drinking, you know, six IPAs Same in a so. row, they'll taste your double IPA at the end of six IPAs and go, oh, this one's got a lot of good bitterness to it. Right. You decide that it's yep. the IPA to win. So. Our discussion today, GABF registrations opens tomorrow. So we're figuring out where we're going to put our beers, right? So, you know, we've got three that we always send in because we've won medals with all three of them. We know how they work. We've got that one left, mm-hmm. right? Where do we put that beer? What do we do? Where do we stick it? You know, do we poach a category? You know, like a fresh hop category at World Beer Cup, and you know, there's only a few entries. Maybe we win a medal, and we can call it that. Or do we make something special just for GABF? There's a lot of ways that you can do a competition. A lot of ways that you can look at it. You know, we've got three that we enter in three distinct categories. That fourth one is our is our kind of what do we do? Mm-hmm. And my statement literally to the guys was make it a clear beer not a hazy beer. Clear beers are what generally the judges are looking for. New England, juicy, hazy, whatever you want to call the category, notwithstanding, all judges are looking for clear beer in general. So right or wrong, you look at what's out in the world and what people are drinking, they can't get enough fluff, they can't get enough haze, they can't get enough whatever. We're going to see a kickback at some point, but the judges, a lot of them are crusty, old, awesome, they've been doing this forever, and this is what an IPA is supposed to be. It's supposed to be clear and bitter and hoppy. At the end of the day, though, um, sales guy, of course, loves the metal thing, uh, yeah. but the brewers themselves, we just make beer that we want to drink. Uh, it's stuff that we enjoy, stuff that like pushes the envelope, maybe gives us a little bit of creative um, you know, inspiration, things like that. Um, that, those are the funnest things to make for us. So, My favorite beer that we just did recently, Tom made a grisette with the five flavor berry for a, uh, for a beer dinner with Latona Pub over in Green Lake. A good grisette is fantastic. A lot of people don't even know what it is, but it's just a low ABV saison. So the five flavor berry, um, is actually an idea from my friend James. Um, he talked about brewing with it and how the flavors inside the berry itself are supposed to go through the whole spectrum. So sweet, salt, uh, savory, um, sour, bitter, all five. It actually comes from Asia. Um, they drink it a lot in Korea. They make a cold steep tea with it. 
and it's also a medicinal herb. So when you taste it, it's very complex and maybe at certain times, certain temperatures, you get different flavors out of it and maybe different people also get different flavors out of it too. So good for the summertime, um, also would pair nicely with food. Then you throw a grisette as the base beer. And you talk to a lot of brewers and ask them what their favorite style of beer is. You hear a lot of something in that farmhouse saison category. And a lot of times you're gonna hear a grisette. You know, Jeff at Three Magnets was here. We were doing a collaboration with him and he kept saying grisette over and over and over again, the entire brew day. And it stuck in my head. And now I'm like cracking the whips, like make more grisette because I want to drink that because it tastes good. It's another good bike beer. It yeah. is a good bike you beer. You go on a bike ride and have that. There's certain breweries where it's just money. They don't care about the beer as much as just making money and selling the beer. And then there's some that are exact opposite where all they care about is making beer for themselves and some weird, weird styles that don't really sell because people don't know what they are. We're guilty of that with Palatamaves and Grisettes and things like that where people can't pronounce it. But we're making beer that we like to drink. We're also making beer that sells. And that's, that's a very important walk in a fine line. And, you know, I think we've kind of found it and, and bringing Sean in to help us scale up to the next level. Tom's weird ass innovation mind that he's got, uh, I just watch his head work sometimes, it's bizarre. Um, I was worried about him at first because he and Aaron were sitting across <laughs> the table from me and I'm like, I don't know about this guy. Then I watched them start talking. I'm like, wow, they're like twin brothers separated at birth. Thank God we have Sean to kind of bring a little normalcy into that. But it's not a bad no, thing. It's just no, the creative say, mind, you know. Not too normal. Not too normal. <laughs> not too normal. <laughs> he pretends to be normal around here. He didn't mean to call you normal. Yeah. No, sure. sorry. Sure, sorry, you could live in Portland or Austin if you wanted yeah. to. Yeah, <laughs> keep it keep it weird. Well, and I think the I think the core will always be there. It'll always be the same. But we're all you have to keep evolving to stay relevant. And I think we're always, you know, Tom being new, me being very new, I think, um, you know, we're, we're pushing a little bit to try stuff that we haven't done before. You know, see, see if we can't make some stuff. Cause I have, you know, personal experience, I have beers that I love making, styles I love making that, while there is some overlap, don't necessarily mesh completely with, you know, what um, Chainline has been. And we're not going to get away from what we have been, and you know, we'll, it'll always be there. But being able to add these extra elements, I think, just makes makes for more um, more excitement for what we're doing, me personally, and hopefully for the general public. Uh, you're talking about walking the fine line between the small local brewer, brewer is brewery and the larger faceless brewery. And um, I think that kind of connects well into like growth in general. You said earlier that you guys are actually growing um, 100% year over year, or you maybe made that number up, but uh, yeah. I, I exaggerate occasionally. Yeah, but surely, but you're growing year over year, um, which is not necessarily something that's going to continue to be possible. Like a lot of the breweries that I've been talking to are small and gonna have to stay that way. What, what is your kind of growth plan at the moment? Like where are you guys going with this? Um, we're on Obviously, you're opening your new place. And opening the new location. 2019, hitting our most conservative, minimal numbers that we have on the schedule. 
will put us in the top 10 breweries in the state of Washington. Which sounds like a lot when you say top 10 of anything, especially almost 400 breweries, but our breweries in Washington are small relative to others around the country. So putting us in the top 10 still is a small number mm-hmm. relative to the you know, Deschutes of the world, which are making ridiculous amounts of beer. Or uh, you know, some of those guys who are making hundreds of thousands of barrels a year, we'll never, we don't ever want to be that big. We don't want to be that big. You know? um, Georgetown makes a lot of beer. Yeah, I guess for the, for a sense of scale, in the top ten brewery, you've got like Mag and Jacks, Georgetown, Fremont. Uh, like, how much longer does that list really go on? But like, I, even it's probably it falls there. off very quickly. Yeah, right. So, as, as an example, Deschutes is the eighth, no, eleventh in 2017. They were the eleventh largest craft brewer in North America, and they made 375,000 barrels. Right. They were the largest craft brewer in Oregon last year. They made more beer. That one brewery made more craft beer than all of the craft breweries in Washington put together. So Mac, or Georgetown made 75,000 barrels last year. Uh, Legion made a bunch, but they're not craft beer anymore, right? You think about, a lot of people don't really split those hairs, but Big companies don't count as craft beer. Mm-hmm. So there's some that have fallen off, some that are still there. Red Hook blurs the line. They're, they're still considered craft by some. They're not craft because they're owned by a big corporation. Um, we're little cute guys. Like I said, we're a tiny little brewery, but we're going to be big in the relative scale of what Washington craft brewers are and how much are being made. So, you know, we're not going to be making a ton of beer. We don't have aspirations to be number one by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, by volume, we want to be number one in your hearts. Oh, That was oh, so cheesy. Yeah. I had to throw it in. Come on. That was great. I love it. That was awful. Two questions. Yes. I want to talk about the, like, the Red Hook line blurring a little bit. And I also want to talk about Deschutes and why they, how are they so big. So, um, you said that Deschutes brews more beer than all of Washington combined this was as craft as craft beer okay yeah that's so doesn't include red hook um doesn't include well i mean okay never mind widmer's in oregon um doesn't it doesn't include a lesion correct um and what what happened there then what's the limiting factor is there is there like a tax or something in washington that's screwing our state over um i don't know what it is i it's a good question i guess it's hard not to compare Washington to Oregon and Portland to Seattle. Um, but I think Oregon has just in general has had larger breweries, maybe even have been around for a little bit longer. Um, you know, Deschutes, I can't remember when they started. This year. But oh, wow. 30th anniversary. Well, that's so one trick to it. I was yeah. going to say part of it is timing. You know, when, mm-hmm. when they started, there wasn't a whole lot around. So, you know, with demand, they were able to grow, you know, trying to. If somebody was trying to get that big now, you're going to uh, have a lot of hurdles to jump over because everybody's going hyper local. Yep. You know, the in the craft beer segment, the regional brewery, which is above 15,000 barrels, is stagnant if not negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're seeing a lot, like I said, a lot of hyper localization, and um, there's just there's not enough room on shelves to to really expand that big anymore. And you look at Oregon, Rogue, Full Sail. 
and Deschutes. Ninkasi. Ninkasi, you add in there, but that's... Freem's pretty big, I would think. That's, that's you know, half a million, 750,000 barrels between four breweries. That's a lot of beer. And like Sean was saying, that was all timing. When they started, Deschutes is 30 years old this year. They've been doing a long time. They're, they're grow, they've, they grew organically and then spread across the country and got into distribution early. You know, their, their distribution's in most of the country at this point. They shut down their facility plans for Virginia. But, you know, like Sean was saying, like certain levels are having problems financially or stagnant numbers. The small guys who are doing tap room, hyper local, that's where all the growth is. And we're right in the middle of that. You know, most of Ballard and Fremont and Soto, all those breweries are right in the middle of that. Washington, Seattle in general is still seeing great growth in beer, unlike a lot of parts of the country where people just kind of got in seeing dollar signs or seeing, you know, this is a cool hobby industry I want to get involved in. Oh my God, it's actually a lot of work to make beer. So I was going to say, and you know, the region you're in also, yeah. you know, this, this region is mature, established, um, you know, you're seeing in, in the Southern US, um, more and more breweries are opening. Uh, particularly as laws change, and they're actually able to get the rapid growth. Um, one of my previous breweries was uh, Lakewood Brewing out of Dallas, Texas, and in you know a couple hundred barrels up to eleven thousand in four years. You know those are I kind of compare this the South as far you know they're catching up as far as you know what craft brewing in the U.S. particularly on the West Coast you know used to be around the the early two thousands where there's there's demand for it, and there's a lot of room to grow. So those can very quickly get up into that regional um, size. But you know, something up here uh, isn't. Uh, there's a lot of market saturation more so than there is in mm-hmm. in that region. Texas is pretty nuts. It's been going really nuts for a little while. So I'm originally from there, and Houston has St. Arnold's Brewery, which is yep. like one of my favorite all time. They, for the longest time, were you know the the big craft scene, craft beer scene there. That was basically one ones that could exist, and they had. You know, they're an old brewery, you know, opened in 95 or 85 or something like that, made them really old. They couldn't sell beer in their tap room. They had to sell tours. And so for $5, you'd come in and get a tour and you got free beer while you were there. It was great for me. I got to drink all the beer I wanted. It was really inexpensive, but like you, now that's not the case anymore. It's not a viable financial. Yeah, it just doesn't work. And so they stayed around and I don't know how big they really were, but they stayed their size for forever. Mm -hmm. Then, I don't know, 2011 or I don't know, 2012, the law finally changes. You're allowed to open your own brew pub now. And within three years, Carbach opened and was bought by Budweiser, wow. and which is like insane. It was actually founded in 2011 and acquired in 2016. So it was a little over five years old when it was acquired. I had to go back and fact check that. So let's bring it back to that. So we're talking about that, that, you know, that blurry line, Red Hook, Widmer, Kona, Craft Brew Alliance, all that crap. Um, what, what are your feelings on that? So, like, I am annoyed by Red Hook. Uh, I think a lot of people, I've talked to, like, brewers who, like, live in Woodenville, and they don't like how Red Hook got up and left and took all their drinkers with them, you know, when they disappeared back to Cap Hill. And now, so now they've shrunk down to this, like, they can't live in the regional space anymore. They shrunk down to a local, the Craft Brew Lab, which is a small brewery, like a little normal-sized brewery in Seattle. I don't know where I'm going with this. Anyway, so what do you guys think about this? Let's talk about Budweiser acquisitions. Let's talk about Red Hook and their shenanigans. Red Hook is, I think it's 30% owned by Budweiser. Okay. Um, so they still have 
creative freedom. Um, I should say that we're pretty good friends with the Red Hook guys, so we share yeast with them a lot, and um, they're doing a cool thing. I think that's kind of how the market is turning. It's changing that, you know, if you don't, I'm not going to say they're not, they weren't innovating, but, you know, the ESB had been around for years, and people weren't that excited by it, maybe. So when you go back to that kind of brew pub setting, you can sell all that beer there for, you know, much larger profit and people are more excited about it. You, and as a brewer, it's more fun too. Um, but other than that, of course, as a brewer, we're not stoked about Budweiser doing what they do, um, trying to cheapen craft, brew, craft beer in general. Um, but once you look at it, uh, look at any other business, uh, look at what Amazon does. Um, it happens everywhere. So it's kind of sucks that craft beer, it happens to that, but you know, it happens to everything. So the, it's kind of just business as usual. It doesn't concern us that much. The, the interesting analogy to me is like the coffee world. If you talk to anybody who is opening a coffee shop, they will tell you one of the best locations you could ever possibly have is right across the street from Starbucks. People want the choice. They know who the big boys are. They know who the little boys are. That's where Budweiser or Molson Coors or any of the big boys have blurred the lines where they are pretending to be what they're not or they're pretending to be what they were. Ballast Point's a good point good look at that you know it's the acquisition was massive they bought shelf space at the grocery store that's all that purchase was like tom said we don't really care that much about it yeah it's annoying you read the stories like eh, whatever we just do what we do we make beer and we sell beer and we still can't we, we still can't provide the amount of beer the demand requires of it if budweiser is pulling their shenanigans fine whatever red hook i don't see any shenanigans at all they did, it was, it was a very scripted, very intentional move that they made. That place in Woodenville was a relic and they couldn't do anything with it in the first place. It was too big, too cumbersome, too silly. Let Nick, Crandall, and Joel and the guys at the Brew Lab make awesome beer. And that place on Capitol Hill is fantastic, it's packed. People don't care where that beer, the big boys who own the finances come from because the beer is made right there. In every word except strict terminology it's craft beer right they just happen to be owned partly by the big boys but joel and nick are making beer right there on capitol hill and it's good beer another weird thing is is the three-tier system in america yeah um you kind of have to as a craft brewer we you almost depend on a lot of those distributors who are also distributing other products could be budweiser could be something else so some of craft beer's growth, and this might be a controversial statement, actually depended on some of those distributors, unfortunately or fortunately, however you look at it. So um, kind of another blurring of the lines. Well, yeah, I, you guys kind of touched on my, you know, everybody, all the owners, it's, it's your decision. You gotta decide what's best for, for you and your brewery, whether it's, you know, 
staying the course or selling to another craft brewery or selling to one of the big guys, you know, I, I can't make that decision, you know, for you. Nobody else can make that decision for you. You have to make your own decision. So I understand why some of these people, you know, went, like the touched on the ballast point when, you know, billion dollars is being thrown out there. You got you to gotta take a hard look who's at gonna that. Who's going to say no to that? Billion. It's a um, billion with a B. Come on, that's a lot of dollars. Uh, but to me, you know, where, where it can kind of get dangerous is, you know, with the acquisition for, you know, craft brewers like, like us, our size, um, anybody who's looking to get into these markets is, you know, with buying the craft breweries, to me, it's, they're, they're giving the illusion of choice. You know, when they own, what, 10, 15 different craft breweries, they can take up an entire shelf, an entire stadium, and it's all still in one house. You know, they're, they're able to kind of, when they want to, and force their weight on an issue, you know, they can pretty much push out most all other players. Uh, the other part of it is Tom kind of, you know, while distribution can be good and there are, there are people, there are distributors that, uh, you know, you can have a very good relationship and mutually beneficial relationship with, you know, there can also be some very shady tactics in distribution as well. And you know, again, having all these uh, former craft brands in it, you know, when they're selling craft, it can be, well, no, our craft portfolio is full, but it's still all going to the same house. Well, I can't fault anybody, and I'm not going to say anything bad about anybody selling. You know, uh, for in my perspective, there can be a little bit of a, a danger for craft beer as a whole. The illusion of choice. Oh boy, that is as good a place as any to cut that conversation off. We actually ended up talking for another 45 minutes after that, continuing to talk about Red Hook and skirting the line between what's independent and what's not. We get Eric to rant a little bit more, and we also learn a little bit more about their backgrounds and what, the, what got them into the beer world. More chain line on next week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Washington Beer Talk. I'm your host, the Cycling Cicerone. If you want to get more episodes of the podcast, then go to cyclingcicerone.com slash podcast. They're all up there. You can get on a Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, most of the places you can get podcasts. Don't forget to check out Craft Beer of the Month at cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club to support the podcast and get tasty beer. Gigantic Bicycle Fest is a three-day festival of music, biking, and the arts, and this year, yours truly is hosting the Beer Garden. If you want to help out, or if you're a brewer that wants to serve your beer at our Beer Garden, then hit me up. If you love biking, camping, art, or any combination of those, then register for a ride at giganticbicyclefest.org and use my promo code BEER for half off your admission. You can register for a 50-mile ride, a century ride if you're bold, or just come and enjoy the music festival and beer, August 24th to 26th. See you there.